You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, thanks for today. Uh, thank you that you are the God and the Lord of the past, the present, and the future. And I pray, God, you give us a sense of hope and comfort in this time. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Tom, would you mind shutting that door there? Dan, you're going to need to take pictures of these notes. The ones I gave you are wrong. Sorry, my bad. Um, okay, so what we're going to talk about today is uh, we're going to be talking about the audience of the future. We've, um, we've had this series, but we're talking about audience. The reason we're talking about audience um, is because uh, there, there are a couple of reasons. One is because developmentally when a child gets to be an early adolescent, they start to become aware that uh, people can formulate an opinion of them. And so uh, David Elkin calls it an imaginary audience. And so it's a very stressful, anxiety-producing um, thing for early adolescents and you know, middle schoolers um, because you know now they feel like they're on a stage. That's one thing. Also, too, the culture that we live in uh, functions very much like a shame-honor culture. One of the two primary um, aspects of a shame-honor culture is that you feel like you live your life in front of the group you live your life in front of an audience, so to speak. And so you, know, you think about the anxiety and stress of being on a stage and public speaking. You know, if you were sitting here where I am and you have, you know, 50 or 60 people, hey, good morning, um, 50 or 60 people who are, you know, watching you, what you're doing, there's, a, there's an anxiety in most cases for that. Um, and so that's, that's part of what is um, fundamentally at the bottom of all this teen anxiety that we see, this anxiety that kids feel is this concept of audience. And so we've been doing a series over the the previous three weeks about audience uh, to help kind of build that paradigm for you as a parent. But we obviously live under an audience too. You know, it's not like you figure it out when you're in middle school and then you you get to high school and you're no longer worried about what people think. You know, it just, that just continues. You just hopefully um, get some tools with which you deal with it. But, um, but anyhow, what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about the audience of the future. What we mean, what I mean by that is so much of um, family life for suburban families, uh, so much of the consciousness of a, an adolescent in particular, but it's just even more true with elementary kids as well, is this sense that there is this future audience um, that is watching them. Um, and this is the future audience in particular is a college admissions panel down the road or a future employer because all they hear is building college resume, building college resume, you know, future employer, future employer that's drilled into their head all the time. Um, and so I would say in a manner where, um, it's pretty normal for even Christian families to live in a de facto atheist manner as if there really is no God of the future, as if really the God of the future is the admissions panel at Vanderbilt or the, you know, whoever does the hiring at whatever the employer is going to be. Um, that's really who holds the key to your future. So, um, and to forget that like God is actually the sovereign Lord of your child's future. Um, and so, uh, let me show you this little video. It'll make you laugh a little bit. Uh, this is from the uh, highly acclaimed <laughs> reality show Two-A-Days. Uh, if, you, if you don't remember this, there was an MTV reality show called Two-A-Days that followed Hoover's football program. This was probably a do- at least a dozen years ago. But this is one of the famous, uh, famous moments. Um, Rush Probst, uh, who was the, the head coach at, 
Hoover back then was not portrayed very favorably uh, in the show or 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 in the media about a dozen years ago for some of his own failures. He's actually I've heard turned his life around. I've heard that uh, I've heard that you know he lives in somewhere in Georgia and uh, has given his life to Christ and is in a good church and, and things have really changed for him a lot. But this is one of the famous moments from the show. He's talking about these kids, uh, these football players, and their you know future scholarships. And here's here's what he says. All you guys who think you scholarship worthy, you know who holds that key? Who do you think holds that key? Ding. Me. Y'all screwed it up. Y'all screwed it up. I mean, that's worth watching two times. <laughs> so, you know, effectively what's being communicated here to these teenagers is, okay, so you have this aspiration to play college football in the future. You have this aspiration, um, you know, to um, to get a scholarship. But you know who holds the key to your future? Dang. No. Um, I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. I'm sorry. No, I mean, what he's communicating is like, I am the Lord of your athletic future. And like, basically, I have the power to make you or break you. Okay, and so again, this is, you know, this, this idea that it's human beings who hold the key to your future and your performance, you know, your performance and your ability to be attractive and appealing uh, and successful in the eyes of this human audience, like, that is what will determine your whole future. You know, your happiness, your contentment, your success, whether you sleep in the gutter or whether you have a nice warm house. Like, it is a human audience that dictates that. I, I, you know, and, the, and the thing is, it's interesting how early this gets embedded. I can remember uh, kind of a couple of funny stories. If you know me really well, this isn't going to surprise you, but this is so absurd, these two stories. Um, one, I was 10 years old, went to uh, Southeastern Swimming Championships. I think it was in Nashville. Anyhow, I did really well. I finished in the top five. And as a 10-year-old, I said to my mom, do you think this is something I can put on my college resume? Uh. I know, that's so sad. <laughs> okay, another uh, another funny story. This is really funny. Okay, so I grew up uh, on that area of Cherokee Bend behind Highlands Day School, like South Cherokee Bend. I used to like to call it the hard side of Mountain Brook, but it's kind of funny. <laughs> anyhow, not really. Anyhow, that was my little joke. Um, but uh, but anyhow, so enough to get ready for this. In like the fourth, fifth grade, fifth grade, I was running with the wrong crowd at Cherokee Bend, and so we um, <laughs> we liked we liked to uh, we liked to, we just liked to do destructive things. Like we would uh, hike through the woods down to 459 and throw stuff at cars oh. on the interstate. Yeah, bad. That's not good. We didn't realize didn't have that frontal lobe developed. That was really bad. And so anyhow, there was a ton of construction back then, uh, like off of Cold Harbor, if, if you're familiar with South Cherokee Bend. But anyhow, and I can remember one night, you know, getting together with this posse, and uh, there was this um, uh, concrete, giant, like concrete sewer tube, you know, that you build, that you, you know, put when you're doing some massive infrastructure neighborhood building project. And um, we just got this idea, we were at the top of a hill, that we were just going to roll it down the street. Okay, guys, this, this thing weighed easily a ton, like exactly like 2,000 pounds or more. And we just sent it down the hill, and it starts rolling, and it runs into a brick mailbox. And it like it made the brick mailbox look like a bowling ball, you know, a little bowling pillar. Just boom, just went right over it. And uh, fortunately, it got caught in a massive hedge. But there was no thought of like, you know, oh, my gosh, if a car is coming like this could kill somebody, right? 
that's not in our, our thinking. And so anyhow, so then the guys were like so fired up about how we leveled the brick mailbox. <laughs> but they were like, let's go over to Mill Springs and let, it was like fall. Let's, I don't know why I'm telling the story. This is way too long. Anyhow, we start collecting bags of leaves. And what the plan was, was to basically, they were like, let's think of something that will, that will induce the police to chase us. <laughs> that was the goal. And so as they're like, as they're like putting stuff in the road to induce the police to, you know, to get someone to call the police and the cops come and we're going to run, but for the rush of running from the police, <laughs> holy cow, um, we, it like hits me. I, and I, this is literally, I said to my friend Whitney DeBartolame and I said, Whitney, if like we get chased by the cops and we get caught and we get like sent to juvie, like we're not getting into good colleges. I said that to him and I was like, let's leave. So we just like split through the woods around Highlands Day and we just hit the road. But anyhow, even back then, sorry, way too long story. Um, but even back then, it was like this sense of college admissions is, you know, if you do something to mess up, then you won't get into a good college and then your life will be ruined. You know, it'll be over. And so it's interesting in, in some of this research about teen anxiety, um, there is a scholar whose name is Sunya Luther. And um, Dr. Luther, she talks about um, in, in one of her studies about how so much of over-programming, so much of the mental illness, um, mental illness issues that you see in American suburban teenagers is caught up in um, everything is justified by college admissions. You know, well, if you don't do this, then you're not going to get into a college. If you don't do that, or if you don't have this tutor, or if you don't make this grade, or you don't take these classes. And so it's really, um, it's really as if a kid lives with, as if there's a college admissions council sitting by them as they take their tests, or as they prepare for the ACT, or as, um, as they select their classes. You know, it's, it's so amazing where I'll ask students, like, why are you taking this many classes? Like, this is not tenable. You're miserable. You study until 12 o'clock at night. This is so stupid. And it's, well, you have to because it looks good to colleges. That's it. These, this, is, this is some of the language that kids hear all the time. When they get into the ninth grade, what is it? <gasps> now, now this matters because colleges are going to see these grades. Colleges are going to see these grades. That's what they hear all the time. Colleges will see these grades. And then the other one is, this will look good on a college resume, or how will this look on a college resume? And so with that being said, it's, it's as if um, like college admissions counselors are uh, at, at colleges are like they're God. And you're trying to justify and please them to secure your future. Um, and so what we're going to talk about is how um, you know, this if it's going to be it's up to me mentality is de facto atheism. Uh, we really do in this area when we talk about our kids' future, we really do live as if God doesn't exist. We live as if these promises of God and the character of God, um, as if they really aren't true at all. And it's not just when it comes to like our kids' future, but also to, you know, as a parent, we all project like crazy, right? You know, I mean, um, you're, uh, you know, you have a, you have a three-year-old who has a bad temper, and you're like, oh my goodness, they're going to end up in jail. Or, you know, uh, or they, you know, you have a, a young child who's like a habitual liar, um, because developmentally they just don't have a category for truth. Um, and you're like, oh my goodness, they are, 
this child is going to, you know, commit white collar crime and go to prison for fraud. You know, it's it's just you project so much, and and so it's one of those things where no matter what it is, we you know having that audience as God, God is the God of the future, like God is the audience of the future, um, is is just absolutely critical both in helping your child but also in you as a parent coping. And so we're going to look, we're going to go through. Um, Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14. Some of you are probably familiar with this for the famous verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Um, we're going to look at that verse in its fuller context. Um, and so to give you a little bit of background, uh, there you go. Give you a little background of what's going on in Jeremiah. So you have, um, oh yeah, we have some, we have, by the way, I have the text over there and, and back there next to Jeff if you need one. But, um, so to give you a little bit of context on Jeremiah, Jeremiah is a prophet in the Old Testament for Jesus. And, you know, when you talk about the prophets, the way you organize the prophets chronologically primarily is in relation to the exile. Um, so you have the exile in 597 B.C. where Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, um, they are invaded and conquered by the Babylonians and they are taken away from Israel into Babylon. And so the prophets are those prophets before the exile, those prophets during the exile, those prophets after the exile. And so, um, and so with that being said, Jeremiah, the, the, the prophets to Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, before the exile are generally one of the primary themes is they are warning the Israelites, repent, like don't make foreign alliances with other governments like Egypt and Assyria trust me, like make your alliance with God, trust me, um, and they don't do that. Like they say to Israel, turn away from your idols, turn to the Lord, and the thing is, like if you don't, there is this threat of the Babylonians coming and conquering you. Like it's going to happen if you don't repent, not as a matter of God's going to strike you down, but as a natural consequence of these bad decisions um, and this lack of trust in the Lord. So Jeremiah is kind of the last prophet, um, such that the Babylonian captivity, uh, sorry, the Babylonian um, invasion is warned in Jeremiah, and you, it is it is narrated. It happens in Jeremiah, and then there is prophecy to the exiles um, who are actually have been taken out of Israel, and you can see they're taken from Israel, and they are marched over 700 miles to um, to Babylon. And, you know, Israel goes from being this sacred country and, you know, independent and autonomous and so on and so forth to now they are enslaved. Uh, they are subordinate to uh, this, this pagan kingdom that they saw as just utterly wicked. And so this was an awful, um, uh, it's just, it was, it's the most traumatic crisis moment in the history of Israel because all of these promises that God has made that they would be, um, you know, his people, that they would be in the land, that he would be their God, that they would be kind of a holy nation and pure to the nations, it has all fallen apart. And so this is, this is a major shock. And so um, basically, Jeremiah in this, in this text, Jeremiah 29, is kind of speaking to the Israelites in exile who've been traumatized, and he is, um, he is giving them uh, a sense of hope for the future. He's talking to them about the future. And so we're just going to go through line by line, and we're going to make applications um, to this as far as like your child and you as a parent and the audience of the future. So first, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So you see the exile. 
This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jer- Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. So you see that in the exile, there are like three phases. There are three waves by which they take the people out of Israel and move them to Babylon. And the first people they take is the cream of the crop. They take the wealthy people, the educated people, the powerful people, the religious leaders, so on and so forth, and they remove them first. And so, so he is first saying... Um, Basically, that this is this is to the people in captivity, the first wave of exiles. And one thing to keep in mind here is, you know, one of the things behind all this focus on the future for us as a parent and for your child is we really have this idea that like we can dictate and control the future. You know, if you make the right plays, you know, if you have a, a, a clean cut kid who doesn't get in trouble and they take all AP classes and they make good grades and you get the ACT coach and they make, you know, a 34 or above and they have a leadership position and they're an athlete or they're on the dance team or something like that. If you can, you know, do the formula, then it's all going to work out. So in a sense, a lot of what is behind all this issue of the audience of the future is a false sense of control, a false sense of control. Now, listen, there is nothing wrong with doing all those things. Those things are fine if that's what God calls you to. And I'm not ignoring the reality that, like, yeah, you should study hard. We're going to get to that in a second. Your kids should study hard. Like, that's a good thing. And there is also this false sense of control. And the Israelites, you know, they didn't think that they were going to, you know, be, go from being a royal priesthood, God's chosen people, as was the identity given to them in Exodus when, with the Mosaic Covenant, when, you know, the nation is established in their identity. And here they are. Here they are basically... Uh, disenfranchised slaves living in Babylon. Uh, and you can see that, you know, just the lack of control that we actually have about the future. So then, starting in verse 3, it says, um, the letter was sent, by the way, part of the anxiety behind all this stuff is because we have the false sense of control, because you're sitting in the position of God. If you think that you can control your future, then you are assuming the role of God and you are bearing a burden that only God can bear. Only God has the power to bear. And so that's generally a lot of times when you're really, really anxious and tied in knots and really fearful, uh, that's generally a good sign. It's like, you know what, I'm probably trying to cling to more control than I really am capable of. And I just need to kind of open up my hands and turn things over to the Lord, um, which is a thing to constantly be doing with your child because they hear this audience of the future pressure all the time and just constantly be reminding them, like, hey, let's give your future to the Lord. Let's give control of your future to the Lord. So then, verse 3, the letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, uh, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So first off, we see that God is the one speaking here and notice that God says, I sent. Now granted, it is the Babylonians who came. It was a natural consequence of the disobedience of the Israelites, but I sent. So basically God is saying, hey, you're here and I am in control and I am sovereign in this circumstance that you find yourself in that's not so hot. Um, Now, verse five, this is a biggie. This is, a, this is such a biggie, verse 5 through 7. So God says to them, first thing, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. 
Anybody, does any of this language, any of the things they're being commanded to do, does this ring a bell from another part of the Bible? Anybody, anybody chime in here? Well, sorry, I'm thinking more Old Testament. Genesis, boom, it's a creational mandate. So basically when God creates man, I mean, there's this creational mandate where he kind of basically gives them um, a blueprint of like what their purpose in life is. So, you know, the, the three categories of the creational mandate are first, um, to have children, like to, to have, you know, get married, have children, have families, basically be fruitful and multiply. I've heard that before. Uh, but, you know, but basically it's relational. Uh, be fruitful in relationships. Second thing he says is to subdue and to cultivate. So basically work. You know, there's this latent potential in creation and you're to work and to cultivate that, you know, cultivate what is in creation. And then finally is Sabbath. And so basically you see the creational mandate in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. It's reiterated after the flood to Noah with the, the covenant with Noah. And it's reiterated in some ways with Abraham. And here you see it showing up to the people. Basically what he's saying is, hey, you're in exile. You're in this terrible circumstance. And all they could think about was getting back to Israel. All they could think about was the future. There was no thought about what was going on in the here and now. And so God reminds them like, hey, settle down, build a house, you know, work, have kids, be fruitful. Like the same purpose I gave you in your creation, it still exists where you are right now. Quit being so obsessed with the future and so obsessed with getting back there and just accept the reality of this is where you are. Where you are right now is Babylon and be fruitful and faithful where I am and seek the welfare of this city even though you hate their guts, right? And so one of the things that I think, that, and I've, we've, I've said this to kids, that I think is such a shame about this obsession about the future and this obsession about college admissions is we ignore the value of the here and now for kids. It's like, you know what? Forget about the result of your grades. Forget about like, you know, what the resume looks like. What about the process itself? Like studying in school, learning how to write, learning how to do grammar, learning how to do math, learning about science, like it has inherent value here and now. It's not just about the future. It's not just about creating this, you know, image that's appealing to, you know, to these, these parties in the future. Like right now has value. Um, right now, in, as an elementary school kid playing sports or a middle school kid or a high school kid, whatever it is, like God is doing something here and now. Be fruitful here and now. God has got control of the future. Like he has, he's got that on lockdown. And, you know, regardless of the outcomes, you're called to be faithful and to do your best where you are right now. That is a God-honoring, God-glorifying thing that lives in to your, the way you were created. And so with that being said, like, I think one thing to do, and I just think there's such a loss of integrity. There's such a loss of integrity when everything is about trying to check the box or control the future. Because we forget about, like, actually benefiting from school or athletics or whatever you're doing here and now. And actually being faithful here and now. And that's one of the great things about trusting the Lord and having Christ in your life is, like, you can say, you know what, I, I, I'm just going to take care of myself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be faithful today. And like, Jesus has got the future. Like, I don't have to, to then add that extra layer of pressure of, 
well, I have to make an A or everything's going to go down the tubes. It's like, you're going to do your best, and like your best is your best, right? That's the limit of your control. And, and Jesus has got the future, and so be faithful where you are in you know, what you're doing vocationally, which for a kid is being a student and an athlete and that kind of stuff, um, and be fruitful and faithful in relationships here and now, like with your friends and your family, and like God will take care of the rest, period. Okay, so, um, so skip, skip, skip. Uh, yes. Okay. All right. We're going to verse eight. Um, so now for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them declares the Lord. So God is telling them reject the false audience. So there were false prophets who were in exile, and what they were saying to the Israelites is like, we're going to be back in Israel like tomorrow. Like, this is, this is all going to be over in like 10 seconds, don't worry. Um, and so they were telling them things that were not true. They were giving them false hope. And so um, Jeremiah is saying, don't listen to them. Like, do not listen to them. Like, I am telling you the truth. Like, I'm telling you the truth. And um, the truth is that they were not going to get back to, the people who were in exile, they were never going to see Israel again. Um, they, there was going to be more than 70 years before they returned. Um, and so he was saying, reject a false audience. So, you know, how does this relate to this topic? Well, I, and, and listen, I'm not, I am, let's, I'm not, let's not be naive and ignore the realities that like, yeah, sure. It, it is, you know, if, um, actions do have consequences and it's okay to, um, it's okay to like, have aspirations and goals and to seek those things, that's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. That's a God-honoring thing. Um, and I will say that there are um, false audiences that create false expectations. So they either create false positive expectations or they create false negative cons- uh, expectations. So what I mean by that is with positive expectations, there is this sense. This is, this is the holy grail behind all this pressure. The thought is, if you make really good grades, if you do really, really well and you're excellent, you have a great resume, then you're going to get into a really good college, which means you're going to get a really good job and you're going to be content. And that's just not true. We've, I mean, we've all seen it in our own lives. We've all seen it in the lives of other people. It's like, you're not going to be, ten- your contentment is going to be contingent upon you depending on and being in fellowship with Jesus. Like, that's, that's, where, that's where your contentment is going to be found. Like, whether you're a trash collector or whether you are making billions of dollars as a hedge fund manager, like no matter what your life circumstance is, the quality of your life, the level of contentment and satisfaction and joy and hope and peace that you have in your life is based on your relationship with Christ. Like if you have a, a close relationship with Christ where you're giving control over him, you're depending on him, your circumstances might not be so great and you might have difficulties in your life, but in your inner life, which is really what's the make or break thing, in your inner life, you have life. You have abundant life in Christ. And so, yeah, there are some really cool things about succeeding and, and, and getting a good job and um, things along those lines. Those are, those, are, those are good things. They are not ultimate things. They're not things that ultimately satisfy, and that's where the confusion and the distortion is, is the false expectation that this will ultimately satisfy, and it's just not true. That's, that's idolatry by definition. On the other hand, there is this sense of, like, if you blow it, if you make a bad choice or you make an F, or whatever it is, then your life is ruined, and you're going to live on the gutter, and you're going to be addicted to heroin. You know, it's like, there's this slippery slope, right? And that's not true either. 
Like God's grace and God's sovereign plan for your life is actually bigger than your successes and failures. And yeah, make good choices and yeah, be faithful and know that you're, like failure is just in our DNA. Failure and falling short is in our DNA and God's grace is much bigger than that. Okay, so um, I'm now kind of speaking as if I'm like speaking to a room of teenagers. So just like take the sound bites and throw it to your kid. All right, okay. Um, all right, so verses 10 says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Uh, and look, God is, um, notice the sentence structure there. I will visit you. I will fulfill the promise. I will bring you back. God is the subject. Uh, he is the actor. Uh, the Israelites are the object in the sentences. And so God is making very clear, I am the one who controls the future. I'm the, I'm the audience of the future. And yeah, there might be some, some lesser audiences of the future that are real, like employers and colleges, but I am the ultimate audience of the future. And so in verse 11, now this is kind of the, the famous verse, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So notice who do the plans belong to. God. God claims possession over the plan for your life. Praise God. That's a good thing. What is our only hope? First question, how to wear catechism. What is our only hope in life and death? I'm not my own, but belong to God. Right? So anyhow, so notice some of these words here. It says, um, uh, to, for your welfare or select to prosper you. That's the NIV translation. So prosper, we tend to think to make you successful, right? Well, really the word for prosper here is shalom, which it has everything to do with your inner life. Like the plans I have for you or are for your benefit in your inner life, for a sense of peace and hope and joy and harmony in your relationships. Those are the plans I have for you. His plans are that he talks about here are not so much uh, about um, your circumstances. They're more about your inner life. So God is saying, like, I know the plans I have for you, and, and I own those plans. And first and foremost, my plan and desire for you is that you will have life, hope, peace, joy, and a sense that you are perfectly loved in your inner life. You'll have peace. Um, then he says, and there are plans that are not for evil. This is important for them to hear because they have just been traumatized, right? I mean, if you're an, if you're an Israelite and you're in Babylon, you have seen friends murdered. You've seen uh, people starve to death. You've seen people die on the trip through the desert to Babylon. You've seen awful things. You've had your whole world rocked. And so there's this question like, God, are you really good? Are you really on my side? And here God is saying, I'm the one who sent you into exile, and these are my, my plan for your life is not, I'm not against you. It is, it is, uh, my plans are not based in evil. And so, you know, there is this assurance, like how do we ultimately know that God's plans for us are for good? Well, it's because of the cross. Like that's our assurance. Like that's the place we look and we say, hey, my circumstances are terrible, but I look at Jesus and I know that God is certainly on my side. He's certainly for me if you die on the cross for me. And so, um, and so notice too that his plan comes before the calling. Um, before before they are called. So next in verse 12, it says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. So his plan precedes the calling. Um, and so, so with that being said, he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So he does promise that he's going to bring him back, and he does that. Um, um, but 
you know, notice that um, he says, what does he say to do? Just seek me. He establishes himself as the God of the future, the audience of the future. He establishes that he has the plans for your life, for your child's life. He makes no promises that those plans are easy. He makes no promises that those plans are going to be successful, that you're going to, you know, that you're not going to fail, all those kind of things. No promises there. But he does plan, he does promise, when you seek me, you will find me. And when you find him, uh, you know, you're, you, the, the future will take care of itself. Like, it's kind of like, we want God's will in the future, right? We'll just find God's will today, every day, which is to, you know, be in fellowship with him. And as you, if, if you're in that every day, you're, you're always in God's will. And, and he, he will kind of step by step, day by day, lead you into the future. And so I think the last word I would say you know, is really, so I, I, I legitimately was a Christian, like starting in the third grade, in spite of my rough times in the fifth grade at Cherokee Bend of, uh, of vandalism. Um, and I can remember it was, it was a cool thing that God did in my life during my senior year. I, I mean, my whole life, my whole life was about the college resume. As you can see by the 10-year-old asking about, can I put a swimming accolade on my college resume? in eight years. Um, but it was interesting because going into my senior year, the guy just gave me this sense of like, I'm going to take you where you need to go. Like I'm, I've got a plan for you. I've got a place for you and just trust me. And I just wasn't that worried during my senior year about where I was going to end up. I was just like, God's going to show me. And it was like so calm. It was like a really tranquil senior year. And it was so interesting because I went and visited these different colleges and I had no peace. And then it was like the perfect day when I went to Wake Forest. It was like sunny and every pretty girl who was on the campus was in front of me that day. And, uh, and I just had this overwhelming sense of peace and joy. And it was clear that is where I was supposed to be. Praise God, it worked out. But, um, but all that to say, like, as there's all this pressure about, you know, building the resume, just like remember that God is the actual audience of the future. Be aware that your child, whatever they're doing in school, especially the older they get, this just continues to increase. They really do live their life as if there is a college, a college is scrutinizing everything they do. You know, planning classes, taking tests, everything they do. It is so intense for these poor kids. And so you want to be a voice of grace that reminds them that actually like, God is watching over them. That's the audience, and God has the future. I need to pray because we're late, uh, and there are children about to roll concrete uh, sewer pipes down streets. Yeah. I think uh, I think it's um, it depends. Sometimes it can come from the parents. I'll tell you, it's pretty darn intense at the school, uh, but it's su- it's more intense at the cultural level. It's more of a cultural expectation. From when I ask when I ask kids, it's, it's more of like. It's not, a, it's not just a Mount Brook expectation. It, I mean, it's Altamont, it's Indian Springs, it's Vestavia, it's Homewood. It's, I mean, it, it, I'm sure, I, I, I don't have as many kids at Spain Park or Hoover, but I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's very, very real there. It's a suburban idol. Um, and so that's just the kind of reality. Let me pray for us, and then I'm happy to chitty chat after. Um, thank you, God, that you are the gracious and good and holy sovereign God of the future. And I pray you give us faith to trust you step by step. Ask your prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.